You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order to be a burden to, to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as, human, as a human word, but as, as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longings, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan blocked our way. And what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way as well you know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labours might have been in vain. Thank you, Karina, and good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm the associate pastor here. It's lovely to have you with us today. If you're visiting, a special welcome to you. We love having visitors with us. It's a great day outside. Please uh, stay back after our service and enjoy a cup of tea or coffee on our veranda and say hello uh, to me and to some of the others who are here. Today, we're looking at Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Um, we've heard that a few times this morning, and we're picking up where we left off last week. Let me just recap the story so far. Last week, we read about Paul's great thanksgiving 
for the church in Thessalonica. If you might remember, it was a thanksgiving that springs from Paul's relief, relief based on the news he has heard from Timothy, that the Thessalonian church is still holding on to their faith strong and secure. If you were with us last week, you might also recall that Paul has a very deep concern for this church in Thessalonica. He was, if we're to kind of use the, the language of today, he was the church planter that went into Thessalonica. He started that church. As you read through this letter, I hope you could see that Paul loves this church. He has a great love for them. But it's not a love that's re- replicated back to Paul, particularly by the rest of the town. We uh, read in Acts that Paul was chased out of the town and he was prevented from returning. We read today that Paul attributes his inability to return to Satan, who he says blocks his way. So Paul wanted to be back with the people of Thessalonica, but he's unable to be there. And that, of course, causes Paul a lot of distress, distress because he loves this church. And so chapter one, we might kind of summarize chapter one as really being about Paul giving thanks to God for the way in which the Thessalonian church had responded to the good news of the gospel. They had held firm. Last week, I paraphrased verse two of chapter one by saying, Paul is giving thanks for the Thessalonian church, for their faith that he describes as being uh, active, for their love, which he describes as being hardworking, and for their patient and their enduring hope. That's what chapter one was all about. Then we get to chapter two. There's a bit of a change, isn't there? I wonder if you noticed that as, you, as it was read to us by Karina. See, it's not that Paul really stops giving thanks for the Thessalonian church, but his focus shifts from them to him and his companions. He starts talking about himself. The question that I want to ask as I've been reading through this is, why does Paul do this? Why would he bother to change tack? And if you look at it, it's not just a kind of minor excursion that he goes on, is it? He, he talks about himself essentially for 12 whole verses. That's a lot of expensive, expensive papyrus that he's kind of taken up writing about himself. Why would Paul do this? What does he want us to know? Well, the letter itself doesn't tell us explicitly the answer to that question, does it? But I think if we read between the lines, we can get a pretty good idea about what might have been going on in Paul's mind and why Paul might have wanted to go and rehash his credentials in such detail. Now, of course, we've got to be very careful when we do this. The words are not written down on the, in our Bibles here. But I think we can make some pretty good assumptions, some pretty good guesses about what was behind the situation here. And here's my, here's my guess. I think Paul is defending himself against the claims that he was a charlatan. He's doing that in order to reassure the Thessalonian church that their faith and their love and their hope is real. You know what a charlatan is? someone who kind of practices some sort of quackery or who speaks some sort of nonsense. Uh, We had one before, Professor Polyester, not quite, but that kind of idea. And normally they do it in order to make um, some personal gain for themselves, in order to make money or something along those lines. Let me show you how I get here to the idea that I think Paul is defending himself against 
being a charlatan. What we know for sure from this letter is that the Thessalonian church was being persecuted. I hope you saw that as the letter was read to us before. But just have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 14. If you haven't got your Bibles open, I'd love you to open them to page 1187. Chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. It's worth mentioning at this point that Paul himself was a Jew and that before his conversion on the road to Damascus, he was a leader in persecuting Christians. So so in this passage, Paul's not really being anti-Semitic. Rather, what I want you to see in this passage is the, the clear evidence that the church in Thessalonica was undergoing persecution. What do you think that persecution would have looked like? What would it have looked like? Imagine it came in a whole variety of different forms, but I think it certainly seemed to involve the telling of this fledgling church to give up on the gospel and to give up on the man who brought them the news of the gospel. And it seems that the townspeople were saying that Paul was a charlatan, a hack or a trickster, that he was like a traveling religious salesman and a fraudster, and that he'd simply visited to make some money for himself. You can almost imagine their jeering today, the townspeople jeering the church. If he was real, if he was the real deal, why did he leave so quickly? Nah, he left because he didn't want to get caught. He'll never come back. So give up on Paul, and while you're at it, give up on that man Jesus as well. And for a moment, I want you to kind of step into the shoes of the persecutors. It's not like religious charlatans are uncommon, is it? We have them today, and they were also around in the first century. I think this is the issue that Paul is trying to help us address, or addressing for the Thessalonian church in the first part of chapter 2. He's writing all about himself because he wants to prove that his ministry is genuine. And secondly, he wants to prove that it's true. Genuine and true. Now you might want to ask the question, why does that matter for us today? Well, I think it matters because today, each of us have a role to play in this world and in our lives as messengers or ambassadors of the good news of Jesus. For some of us, for some of you, That might mean that you bring the good news of Jesus into your work groups. For some, it might be into mothers' groups. It might be into your school or your sports team. Wherever that is for you, one thing I think is clear, that is those groups, those people who you are going to, who you are living out the message of the gospel, they will look closely to see if that message is genuine and true. As our world becomes ever more critical of Christianity and the truth that it speaks of, I think we need to follow perhaps more than ever today the instructions and the example set by Paul by being genuine believers and genuine livers of the message of the gospel. 
If you're here today because you're uh, just checking out what Christianity is and you want to know a little more about it, I hope that today you can see in these words that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica that Christianity is true and is genuine because it's based around Jesus, the one whom God raised from the dead, the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. I hope you can see that as we look through our passage today. But I want to just pick up with you this morning three, three points that I hope will help us to seek to be true and genuine messengers of the gospel. If you've got your leaflets there, you might like to follow along with me in your leaflets as well. But the first of these three points that I want us to see is that our minist- in our ministry, we need to have a hard-working love. A hard-working love that's not easily swayed or put off by the challenges of persecution. Second thing I want you to look at, what I look at with you this morning is that we need to be seeking the approval of God in our ministry, not of people. And the third thing is that we need to love those people who we minister to. The other three things that I want to look at with you this morning, let's start by looking at uh, Paul's example of hard-working love. Let me read to you from verse 1 of chapter 2 in, Thessalon- in, in 1 Thessalonians. It says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So prior to arriving in Thessalonica, Paul had been in Philippi, and he tells the Thessalonians that he and Silas have been treated outrageously there. You might be wondering what that means. What does it mean to be treated outrageously? Well, let me read to you from Acts 16 that tells the story of what happened. There in Philippi, Paul had commanded a spirit out of a fortune teller, and then listen to what the crowds do. The crowds joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Treated outrageously. That means they were stripped bare, beaten with rods, severely flogged, thrown into jail and fastened with stocks. Paul's not being a drama queen, is he, when he says that they were treated outrageously. They really were. I want you to remember that Paul was a respectable man. He was educated. He had a trade. He could easily have just thrown in the towel at that point, couldn't he? Settled down to some sort of cushy job. And yet he presses on and he arrives at Thessalonica, possibly still bearing the cuts and the bruises from his flogging. He'd been beaten black and blue and imprisoned, suffered greatly. And yet he and Silas keep going. That's hard-working love, isn't it? Did you notice at the same time that Paul's not able to keep going just because he's some sort of superhuman apostle or anything like that? No, he keeps going and he tells us why it's because of the help of God. It's right there in verse 2. Did you notice that as it was read? It says, But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. 
It's one of the marks of our genuineness or our authenticity, isn't it, that we'd rely on God as we dare to tell others the great news of the gospel. Today, none of us are apostles like Paul. Yet that doesn't excuse us from being speakers and doers or livers of the gospel. And what that involves for each of us will be different. We each have a different role to play in that. But we share a common need, don't we, for God's help in that task. I wonder if you're relying on God when you invite friends over from your workplace for a Saturday afternoon barbecue. Are you relying on God as you teach or lead a community group? Are you relying on God when you pursue a business decision at work that's based on your gospel conviction rather than on company profit or self-promotion? Are you asking God to help you when you speak and act out truth and humility when you play sport on a Wednesday evening? Are you asking God to help you as you parent and raise your children so that they will see your love of Jesus and praise him for their whole lives? These things are difficult, aren't they? Living out the gospel in our lives. Ministering around us is a difficult thing for us to do. I think we learn from Paul here that real gospel ministry depends not on our power, but on the power of God. See, Paul's willing to risk it again and again. That requires so much more than human courage, doesn't it? He does it with the help of God. If Paul needed God's help, we should be asking God to help us to live out our hardworking love in this life. The second thing that I want you to see about a marker of uh, ministry being genuine and true is that our ministry would seek God's approval rather than the approval of people. You'll see that in verses 3 and 4 of this passage. Let me read them to you again. Paul says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. I think the big idea in these verses is pretty clear, isn't it? Paul's essentially saying, see, I'm not a charlatan. How could I be? In fact, I don't care what people think. I'm not after their money. I'm not after their affections. Rather, I'm just trying to please God. And so Paul's message is to proclaim Jesus. It's not based on flattery and his motive is not based on greed. No, he's simply trying to please God who tests the heart. I think for our church, these verses are very valuable. I think we need to take special notice of them. And the reason why this is so applicable, I think, to our church is that we're seeking to be a church that's externally focused. We want others to know about Jesus. We're seeking to be outward and friendly. We want to be relevant to those around us. And these are all good things for us to be. In fact, uh, our mission to seek and grow disciples of Jesus comes from Jesus' own words in Matthew 28. But as we do that, we need to watch the motives of our hearts. We need to be especially careful as we seek to be relevant to the world around us. We need to continually check 
Who are we seeking to please? God or the world around us? You see, our temptation for an outward-focused church is to allow the community or the world to begin to set our agenda. That way we'd be more welcoming to a wider group of people, wouldn't we? At times it'll be so tempting for us to conform to the ways of the world. But a church that's not seeking God's approval will eventually lose the gospel, won't it? It'll seek to be no church at all. If you were here last week, you might have heard David Helliard, who was here speaking about the Ministry of Compassion. If you weren't here, Compassion is a a Christian aid organisation focused on disadvantaged children. You might remember David telling us how in the early days of the Compassion Ministry, Compassion was offered millions and millions of dollars from the US government in order to continue its aid work. David told us how it came with one catch, though, and that was that compassion needed to drop its religious affiliation. And David told us how compassion had to walk away from all of that money, all of that funding, because the gospel and Jesus is essential. That's what it means to please God and not people, isn't it? The mark, I think, of authentic gospel ministry is that it won't be phased by people, but rather it will seek to please God. I wonder what a difference that might make to you in your lives if you really sought to please God and not people. Here's a little bit how that works in my life. Many of you will know that I'm employed here at uh, Trinity Inner South into a, a network of churches that exists with a mission statement to plant more churches. And I've known that ever since I started at Trinity Inner South. I've known that uh, Matt wants me to plant a new church. I've known that Matt's boss, Paul Harrington, wants me to plant a new church. I know that many of you here are heavily invested in us planting a new church. And it would be a lie to tell you that I've never felt the pressure of that responsibility. There are many reasons why I also might want to plant a new church. It'd make Matt look like a great trainer passing on the knowledge of how to plant churches. It'd make Paul Harrington's vision of planting more churches look just that little bit more sparkly with one more church under his belt. And I've had to check my own motives as well. I'd be known as someone who's planted a church. But I shouldn't be doing this, should I, to make Matt look like a good trainer or Paul look like a good vision caster. I certainly shouldn't be doing it to make a name for myself. Genuine ministry seeks to please God, not people. What does it look like for you in your life, I wonder? In one sense, when we think about that, it it seems a bit liberating at first, doesn't it? It's freeing not to have to please others. I no longer have to please Matt. That's a a good thing uh, in one sense. But on the other hand, it's truly terrifying, isn't it? You see, with God, nothing is hidden. He tests our hearts. In one sense, I might be able to bluff my way past Matt. He might think I'm doing well, but God truly knows the state of my heart. And he's the one that I want to please. And so bluffing won't work. 
Well, we see in, in 1 Thessalonians that Paul's ministry is based on a desire to please God. I think it's a mark that makes his ministry both genuine and real. And the third thing I'd like you to see from chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians are the compelling images that Paul uses to describe the way in which he cares for the church there. Paul, as a, as a writer, as a, as a New Testament writer, he's not really known for his lovey-dovey nature, is he? Um, we normally think of his kind of fierce concern for righteousness and blamelessness. But in this letter, we get a different view on Paul. We see his love and concern for this church kind of overflowing and pouring out. He describes his love as being a bit like that of a parent caring for children. You have a look with me at how he cares for this fledgling church in Thessalonica. You'll see it there in the second half of verse 7 of chapter 2. Paul, speaking himself, says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I've had the wonderful experience in my life of watching my wife care for and nurse our four children. There is no greater expression of hard-working love, is there, than of a mother caring for young children, getting up in the middle of the night. They occupy all of your thinking. That's how Paul describes his ministry among the Thessalonians. That's not the love of a charlatan, is it? It's genuine and it's what real and hard-working love looks like. And in just in case you missed it, this parental love that Paul exhibits, he goes on in verse 11 to say, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, I know that some of us might not have had the relationships with our parents that we might have wanted but I think we all understand, and in the most part, we kind of get that there is no more model or no more genuine model for care and concern and growth and development than that which a parent has for their children. And that's how Paul cares for those he ministers to. And it's a powerful example for us to follow in our own lives, isn't it? Today, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul refute the claim that he was a charlatan, and we see instead him arguing that his ministry was genuine and that his message was real. Now we see what this might look like for us to minister to those around us in a similar way. I want to look at one last thing with you this morning. That's the last section of, the last section of text with you. It's a prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonian church. You'll see that at the end of chapter 3 in verse 12. Let me read that passage to you. It says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. It's a prayer that the Thessalonians' love would be hardworking and deep. It's a prayer in which Paul is asking God to help the Thessalonian church love as he loves them. A love that's hardworking, a love that seeks to please God, a love that looks like the way in which a parent cares for their children. 
bringing the good news of Jesus to our friends and our workmates, to our schools, to our playgroups. It's a difficult task, isn't it? We need to be asking God to make our love for those people increase and overflow. I want to do that now for us as I close in prayer. Almighty God, you alone are worthy of our praise and it's to you alone that we should be looking to please. Father, we live in a world where many despise you and where many others simply just dismiss you. And yet we've seen today that your gospel is both genuine and true. And so, Father, we ask that today you would make our love overflow for each other and for everyone else. Help us to have a hard-working love that bears up under pain and persecution. And Father, please strengthen our hearts so that we will be blameless and holy in your presence when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.